Somebody said a little while ago that they heard me here several years ago. And I said, I've never been here. <laughs> I'm sure they have heard me somewhere, but I don't believe it was here. Because I've been driving around in circles for about 15 minutes <laughs> trying to find this building. And I want to tell you that I think very highly of Mike Hickson. I've known him for a long time. And he can tell you how to get to heaven. But he cannot tell you <laughs> how to get to the building. <laughs> I had the directions that he wrote out for me and I read them and I followed them and I've seen a lot of Olive Branch this morning. More than I ever intended. But I'm glad that I have found you and I'm glad to be with you and I'm glad to have a lot of old friends here. You know, for years and years, they introduced me by saying, uh, this is one of our fine young preachers. Somewhere along the line, they dropped some of that. And I'm not exactly sure when it happened, but I know that there was a time that I was one of the young preachers. I actually was 21 when I moved to work with the Getwell Church over in Memphis. And some of these folks that are up here were there back then and some at later times. And I've had a long association with congregations in this area. But now then I have to recognize I'm one of the senior preachers. And that's been a difficult transition for me to make in my mind. But sometimes I realize that when I go out to cut the yard or I try to do some tasks that I've done before. But it is always a delight for me to be with people who are members of the body of Christ. And you heard uh, Brother Mike introduce my topic a minute ago. I'm going to speak on everything he asked me to speak on but not in the order that we first thought. I have some things that I want to lay down as groundwork. And I want to talk to you a little bit this morning during this particular hour about some history. And it is some uh, church history that I think will be helpful to us in laying a foundation for the other matters that we're going to discuss throughout the day. Now, I don't have a control up here, so if you will put the first slide up there on the board, we'll begin with that. I don't know whether it's working or not. If it's not, I'll talk without it. Well, there it is. The Protestant Reformation. The word Protestant comes from the word protest. The word Reformation comes from the word reform and there was a rebellion against Catholicism. Catholicism was the predominant religion in the world. And men began to realize that there had been many corruptions in Catholicism and therefore there began to be a rebellion, a protest against all of the corruptions and the abuses that had developed. And the idea behind that protest was that they were going to reform 
the errors that had developed in Catholicism. And if you can see it up on the screen here, you'll notice that in the upper left-hand corner, I have the date up there, October 31, 1517. Now that is a very important date in uh, church history. And I'm going to tie that in with what we're going to discuss today about the New Testament church. But I want to give you a little history in order to bring all that together. Let me have the next slide. The Protestant Reformation started in Germany. And you'll notice on this slide that I have three different areas where this Reformation took place. It began in Germany, and there you see the date that I had before, 1517. Then under that, the Swiss Reformation, and I've dated that 1519, might be a little a variation in the dates there. And then a little bit later, the English Reformation, which I've dated in 1534. So in the 1500s, you had this rebellion against the Catholic Church. And when I say rebellion, I'm talking about from people who were members of the Catholic Church. I'm not talking about outsiders. I'm not talking about critics. I'm talking about those who were a part of Catholicism who were members of Catholicism, but they were dissatisfied with all of the uh, corruptions that had occurred in Catholicism, and they began to rebel against that. They began to object to that. And so this began with Martin Luther in Germany in 1517. And then it began to spread over into Switzerland. The two uh, well-known Swiss reformers were John Calvin and a man by the name of Ulrich Zwingli, and then over into England with the rebellion of the king, Henry VIII. We'll say a little more about all of those as we go, but I just wanted to outline for you the fact that there was in the 1500s, beginning in 1517, a rebellion against Catholicism, and that it spread from Germany to Switzerland to England and throughout Europe. So um, here are the leaders of that movement. The leader of the German uh, movement was Martin Luther, a name that is well known, I think, to most of us. Born in 1483, died 1546. The Swiss Reformation, Ulrich Zwingli, that's a name that many will not be as familiar with. He's not as well known in church history, but he was a very important character in church history. You see, he was born there one year after Luther, 1484, died in 1531. He was killed in a war. John Calvin was born in France in 1509, but most of his work was done in uh, Geneva, Switzerland. He died in 1564. And then the English Reformation under King Henry VIII, he was born in 1491, died in 1547. So you see they're all along somewhere about the same period of time. Luther being the first and then others coming along after him. And uh, I actually have been to the tomb of Martin Luther and the tomb of Henry VIII. So uh, I'll say a little more about that in a moment. Let's move to the next one. Here is a picture that I took in 2007. 
I always wanted to go over into Germany where some of this church history transpired. But I never thought that I would have the opportunity. And one reason is because much of what happened, for example, with Martin Luther, happened in what we now know as Eastern Germany. East Germany was behind the Iron Curtain. You remember the Berlin Wall? Well, that was not only in Berlin, there was a border between West Germany and East Germany and you could not go over into East Germany. And Martin Luther's work was done in a little town in Germany. We would look at it in English and call it Wittenberg, W-I-T-T-E-N, Wittenberg. But that's not the way the Germans pronounce it because they pronounce a W as though it were a V. So the town is actually known as Wittenberg. Well, that was behind the Iron Curtain. That was in East Germany. And I was so interested in church history and I'd read about it for years and years and I wanted to know more about it. I wanted to go there, but I thought that'll never be possible. But you remember that President Ronald Reagan stood at the Brandenburg Gate in Berlin and he said, Mr. Gorbachev, who was then ruler of Russia, tear down this wall. And not too many years after that, the wall came down. And I have been to the Brandenburg Gate. I have been into uh, Berlin. I've been to Checkpoint Charlie where people were able to pass through from East Germany to West Germany. All of that is open now. I've even seen the remnants of the Berlin Wall. Most of it has been torn down, but there are a few sections of it that were allowed to remain for historical purposes. And I've been there and seen the wall and thought about all of the people that died trying to get out of East Germany that was communist at that time. But now that's all open and finally East Germany opened up and there was an opportunity to go to this little town called Wittenberg. In 1517, Martin Luther was a Catholic priest. He was walking down the street one day and he found one of his members drunk in the gutter. And Luther said, sir, I'll see you in confession. And the man said, I don't have to come to confession. I bought an indulgence from John Tetzel. Well, now John Tetzel was a priest sent out by Pope Leo X to raise money to rebuild St. Peter's Cathedral. And one way that John Tetzel raised money was he sold indulgences. And that is a little complicated to explain, but I can say this much about it. It freed people from the punishment of their sin, temporal punishment, punishment on earth. So whereas somebody drunk in the gutter at one time might have to go to confession, where one might have to perform certain acts in order to be forgiven, now then they're freed from all of that because they have bought an indulgence from this priest known as John 
Tetzel. And Luther was angered by this. He did not believe it was right that a man could commit a sin, that he could be drunk in the gutter and not have to do anything in order to receive forgiveness of that because he had paid money and purchased an indulgence. And so Luther sat down and wrote out what in church history has come to be called the 95 Theses. That was actually 95 criticisms of the Catholic Church. Now remember, Luther was a priest, but he saw all of these corruptions. He saw all of these abuses. He recognized all of these errors that occurred. And so he sat down and wrote out one of the most famous documents in church history, the 95 Theses, where that he set out his criticism of what John Tetzel had done, of the sale of indulgences, of other corruptions that had developed in Roman Catholicism. And when Luther wrote out those 95 Theses, he took them down to the castle church in the town where he lived, Wittenberg, Germany, and he nailed the 95 theses to the door of the church. That's where they posted notices. That was more like the newspaper of that day. That's where everybody read announcements about what would occur. 95 theses nailed at the door of the church in Wittenberg, Germany. And in the picture that I have on the screen before you is the door where on October 31, 1517, Martin Luther nailed the 95 theses. With one exception. The door you see in that picture is brass. And the doors that were there when Luther nailed the 95 Theses were wood. But that is the same doorway. That is the same entry exactly where Luther nailed the 95 Theses. And by the way, that man in the center of that picture is a guide and these are German tourists that are standing there in front of him. And my wife just, she and I happened to walk up there and I saw that fellow and he is dressed in the kind of robes that Martin Luther would have worn. And he's explaining to these people in German what occurred. And I could not resist taking the picture of that man dressed like Luther standing in front of those famous doors where Luther nailed his 95 theses. Now I want to tell you something interesting about those 95 theses. They were not meant for the common man. How do we know that? Luther wrote them in Latin. That was the language of the scholars. That was the language of the priesthood. Luther actually wrote these for the benefit of the leadership in the Catholic Church in order that he might point out to them what he observed as corruptions and abuses in Catholicism. But 
The amazing thing is they were translated. They were spread around. They went across Europe. They had an amazing impact. And what apparently happened was the very feelings that Luther had and the very concerns that Luther had about the corruptions in Catholicism were being felt by other people at the same time. And when they began to read what Luther wrote, they affirmatively agreed with him. They said, that's right, we have seen that, we know that, we understand that to be the case. And that is why that just a little south of Luther, down in Switzerland, you had this man I mentioned earlier, Ulrich Zwingli, who came along and said, these are the very same things that I have been concerned about. And so this was the beginning of what we know as the Protestant Reformation. October 31, 1517. And by the way, that picture right there, I took on October 28, 2007, almost exactly 490 years to the day from the time that Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the door. That just happened to be when I was able to be in Wittenberg, Germany and to visit this scene. Well, because of the 95 Theses and the work of Luther, the Reformation began to spread and people began to rebel against Catholicism. And they began to demand that corrections be made and that there should be a reform or a reformation of what they observed in Catholicism. Let's go to the next slide. I just want to show you a little about the life of Luther that I was able to observe during the time that I was there. In this picture, I am standing in front of Luther's pulpit. Now, it wasn't a pulpit like the one where I'm standing today. The way they uh, had those in Europe was there were steps that led up into a pulpit that was high above the audience. And if you look above my head there at that little box at the top of that pulpit, that is where Luther stood. So um, this pulpit has been preserved. This is the very one from which Martin Luther preached. And it is located in a museum in that town I mentioned, Wittenberg, and the museum is located in the house where Luther lived. You know, one thing that's amazing to me about the people over there in Europe, they preserve their history. I mean, here is the very pulpit from which Martin Luther preached, located in the very house where Martin Luther lived. And I showed you the very doorway where Martin Luther nailed those 95 theses and 1517, you know what we would have done with all that in America? We would have torn it down and put a McDonald's there. <laughs> so it is very amazing and very interesting to be able to visit over there in uh, Europe and to see how they have preserved their history and many things that you and I have read about and studied about, they're there. You can go there and see them. And so here is the pulpit of Martin Luther. All right, let's go to the next. That's Luther's house. And uh, 
You see that device on the wall there in the center on about the second floor? That says that that is Luther's house. He lived there, and that house, by the way, was furnished to him by the ruler of this area of Germany in which he lived. And the doorway that you see down below there, sort of to the left, was a gift to Luther from his wife. Luther was a priest in the Catholic Church when he first began to protest. But he later was excommunicated. That means the Pope read him out of the Catholic Church and Luther married. He married a former nun. So you have a former priest and a former nun marrying. Her name was Catherine Van Bora. And they lived in this house and there is one room in that house that has not been modernized. It's been left just like it was when Luther lived there. And I walked through that room and they said that's where Luther would often meet with his students and they would study together. But there is the house where Luther lived and it is now a museum that has many of the uh, items in it relating to the life of Luther. Go to the next. This is a picture, see that big tree there? That's called Luther's Oak. My wife is standing in that picture. I asked her to stand over there to give an idea of the size of that oak. Luther's Oak. You know, I mentioned that Luther mailed those 95 theses to the door of uh, the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany, October 31, 1517. That's what started the Protestant Reformation. By 1521, the Pope decided he could no longer tolerate Luther. And so the Pope issued an edict excommunicating Luther from the Catholic Church. And the reason this is called Luther's Oak, this is the spot. It was near the gates of the city where Luther took the edict of the Pope excommunicating him and burned it right here. Now that's not the original oak. They've had to replant one, I think, several times since 1517. But it is the original place where that Luther showed his absolute contempt for the action of the Pope he was not moved by the fact that the Pope excommunicated him, but instead he burned the edict sent out by the Pope, and it was done at the place where this oak tree is growing. Next, please. This is inside that castle church that I showed you the doors a moment ago where Luther nailed the 95 theses. That structure that you see there in the center is the pulpit, a little fancier than the one that Luther had. But if you'll notice, there are stairs, kind of a spiral staircase, going up into that pulpit. And that is how the preachers proclaimed their message in that day. They would climb the steps up into that pulpit. They'd be well above all of the uh, congregation, and they spoke from that pulpit. Now, one thing I want you to notice in this, by the way, there were two churches in Wittenberg Luther actually preached at what was called the city church. 
the 95 theses were nailed to the door of the castle church. Two different churches there. I didn't even know that until I visited there and saw both of those churches. But the castle church was the center of town. It was where the notices were posted. And Luther is buried just below this pulpit. And if you're able to see, look down from the pulpit and you see those yellow flowers there at the base, that is Luther's tomb. He's buried inside that castle church below the pulpit. Let's go to the next. This is the tomb of Luther. I'm standing there at his tomb on the visit that we made there. And it was remarkable to think about that this man died in the 1500s. Uh, he died in 1546. And he was buried here in the floor or the cathedral uh, under the pulpit. And his grave has been there all these years. So that is the tomb or the burial place of Martin Luther. Go to the next. This is the other church in town known as the City Church. Uh, this is where Luther preached over 3,000 sermons. And it was in this church that the pulpit was located that I showed to you earlier. And my wife and I went to a service in this church. We didn't know there was going to be one. But they had a visiting, of course, that's a Lutheran church now. It was a Catholic church when Luther was there. And they had a visiting preacher from California, a Lutheran preacher, and he spoke in English. So that was handy for us. We decided we'd go in and sit and listen, and we did. We visited a service in that church in English. Go to the next. This is the main street of Wittenberg, Germany, where Luther lived. And where I'm standing here with the camera to take the picture is near Luther's house, which I showed you a moment ago and where there's now a museum. And as you look down that street and you see that steeple back there in the background, that is the castle church. So you can see how that was sort of the center of their society back in that day. And I couldn't help but think as I stood right there at that main street and Right over here behind me and a little to my left was Luther's house. And right there in the foreground in front of me was that castle church. How many times Martin Luther must have walked back and forth in that very area. Go to the next. This does not have anything to do with Luther, but I put it in here just out of interest. This is in Prague in what used to be Czechoslovakia, now known as the Czech Republic. But another reformer by the name of John Huss preached at this church in Prague. And so I put the picture in because he was a part of the Protestant Reformation. Next. This is the town hall, or what we might call city hall, in Wittenberg, Germany. And directly in front of it, if you can see, there is a monument there. That is a statue of Luther. So they still recognize Luther's influence even today. In fact, when uh, my wife and I pulled into this little town of Wittenberg, we were on a train and we pulled into the train station and the sign didn't say Wittenberg, it said Luther stopped. 
Well, S-T-A-D-T, Stadt, is the word in German for town or city. So this is still Luther town, even though the name of the town itself is actually Wittenberg. All right? Let's pass that one. I'm not going to spend time on that. Now, I want to tell you a little about uh, the Reformation. I've tried to show you some historical pictures. I hope it's been interesting to you. I hope that it may help focus in your mind something about what happened in the rebellion against Catholicism. But what I really want to emphasize in this lesson, Mike, how much time do I have? About 10 minutes. Maybe I can talk fast. What I really want to emphasize in this lesson, because it's going to fit with our other studies today, is where denominationalism started, how it began. You go out of here and probably a block or two away, there's another church building with a different name out front. You go inside, they preach a different doctrine. You go uh, two or three blocks another way, you find another building, it has another name on it. You go inside, they may be different to the first one that you went into and on and on and on. And the world today is confused about religion. They hardly know what to believe. And many people don't even know what the church believes of which they are members. It just happened to be in the neighborhood or it uh, was where their friends went or there may be some other reason why they have gone there, but they may not know anything much about how it started, where it started, what the uh, founder's name was or anything of that kind. And many of our young people do not understand the difference in the church that we read about in the New Testament and all of the denominational world that is around about us. So giving you the history that I've talked about, Luther nailing the 95 Theses, rebellion against Roman Catholicism, efforts at reform known as Reformation, all of that is what led to the condition that we have around us today. That is how denominationalism began. Before 1517, there had been some other efforts to correct the abuses in Catholicism, but it was basically the church that people knew. Only after the work of Luther, beginning in 1517, do you begin to see the establishment of these various other churches' denominations. One of the great leaders in the Reformation was a man named John Calvin. Calvin was based in uh, Geneva, Switzerland. And Calvin has been one of the most influential theologians in church history, even down to today. Uh, Calvin is considered one of the founders of the Presbyterian Church. And not all Presbyterians still agree with Calvin, but Many Baptist churches are Calvinistic, either fully or partially. And here are the basic doctrines taught by Calvin. They're usually abbreviated by the little word tulip because that is an acrostic for the five points of Calvinism. Number one, total depravity. That's the idea that uh, babies are born utterly and totally depraved. Uh, two, unconditional election. 
That is the idea that one is either saved or lost. God chose that. You had nothing to do with it. You cannot do anything to change it. You're either one of the elect or you're one of the non-elect and there's not anything you can do about it. In fact, one of the old creeds said the number of those uh, to be saved and then it went on later and said the number of those to be damned is so fixed and determined that man cannot alter or change it. That was a part of Calvinism, that you're unconditionally elected either one way or the other. And then the third point, the L, is limited atonement. Calvin's idea was that Jesus did not die for everyone. Calvin taught a limited atonement, which was that Jesus only died for the elect. So if you are one of the elect, which we've already seen, that was unconditional. It wasn't anything you did. God either chose you or not. If you were one of the elect, Christ died for you, and you were going to be saved. And if you were non-elect, Christ did not die for you, and you're going to be damned. That was a part of the Calvinistic scheme. So total depravity, children born totally depraved, unconditional election, God selects you either to be saved or to lost, limited atonement, Christ did not die for everyone. I think about verses like Hebrews 2 and verse 9 that says he tasted death for every man. I think about John 3 and verse 16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Who? Whosoever. But Calvin's idea was Jesus did not die for everyone. He only died for the elect. And then he taught the idea of irresistible grace. That is to say that uh, God's grace appeared to you and you could not resist it. You could not do anything about it. You were either saved or lost. And if you were saved when the grace of God appeared to you, it consumed you and took over your life or else you were one of the non-elect. And finally, uh, Calvin taught the idea of the perseverance of the saints. Today we know that by a little different name. It is generally called once saved, always saved. Now, I'll show you something interesting about that. Nearly all Baptist churches teach that last one, once saved, always saved. But they have rejected a lot of the earlier ones. Uh, some Baptists teach total depravity, children are born in sin. Uh, hardly any of them teach unconditional election or limited atonement or irresistible grace, but they have clung to the old Calvinistic view of the perseverance of the saints, once saved, always saved. And I just mention this as a historical curiosity because perseverance of the saints, once saved, always saved, was based on the others. It was not an independent doctrine. The reason that you were once saved, always saved, is because you were one of the elect. You were one of those for whom Christ died. And you had been saved as a result of God's sovereign choice in the matter, and therefore you could not be lost. So it is interesting to me that many of our modern day churches have resisted the foundation of that doctrine and they have moved away from it, but they have clung to that one last vestige of the Calvinistic scheme. Go to the next. 
I want to tell you a little about Henry VIII. Old Henry was a pretty interesting fellow. Uh, he had six wives. And uh, Henry became king of England. He's buried at uh, St. George's Chapel at uh, Windsor Castle. And I've been there, stood right there at his grave. His first wife, as you'll notice on the list here, was known as Catherine of Aragon. That was Spanish. That was an arranged marriage. That happened very often back in uh, medieval times. In order to forge an alliance between two countries, they would have the king or the queen of one country or somebody from the royal family marry the ruler of another country. And so that forged them together. Well, now Catherine of Aragon was married to Henry's older brother. And Henry VIII's older brother died young. Well, they had married them together in order to forge an alliance between England and Spain. So when the brother died, the pressure was on Henry VIII, the new king, to marry his brother's widow. And that's what he did. He married Catherine of Aragon. She bore him one child, a girl, named Mary. And if you're familiar with English history at all, she is the one who later became known as Bloody Mary. Catherine, Spanish, was Catholic. She raised her daughter Mary, Catholic. Henry VIII rebelled against Catholicism and established what is known as the Church of England, which in the United States we know as the Episcopal Church. That was founded by Henry VIII. When Henry VIII died and Mary became queen, she tried to stamp out the Protestant Reformation. She had the leading Protestants in the country killed. And that's where she got the name Bloody Mary. But we'll tell a little more about Henry VIII here. He married uh, Catherine of Aragon, but he wanted to choose his own wife, and there was a beautiful attendant in the court of the queen there in England named Anne Boleyn. And Henry VIII sought permission from the Pope to annul his marriage to Catherine of Aragon and to marry Anne Boleyn. Well, ordinarily, uh, popes were known to be pretty generous about allowing such things among rulers. But bear in mind, in this case, Catherine of Aragon is related to the king of Spain. And Spain is a strong Catholic country. So the Pope refused to annul the marriage of Henry VIII to Catherine of Aragon so that he could marry Anne Boleyn. As a result of that, Henry VIII withdrew from the Catholic Church 
and married Anne Boleyn and established what we know as the Church of England, sometimes called the Anglican Church, and in the United States known as the Episcopal Church. And then he later beheaded Anne Boleyn and married Jane Seymour, who finally produced a male heir for him, Edward VI, who died young, and then Mary uh, became a queen, the daughter of Catherine of Aragon, and Anne Boleyn had a daughter who became the greatest queen known in English history, and that was Elizabeth. All very interesting. A lot of stories about it, but my time is up, and I'll pass that all by. I want to bring it to a conclusion, though. Why am I telling this? Why am I emphasizing this? What I want us to understand as we go forward through our studies this morning is that every Protestant denomination in the world is only about 500 years old. All of them started from and after the time of Luther. Now you have an exception in the Catholic Church, what's called the Greek Orthodox Church, but basically all of these denominations all around us have been in existence less than 500 years. It won't be until 2017, that's about five more years from now, that they will actually be 500 years old. And what I think the general public does not understand, and I believe it is regrettable, many young people don't understand, is that all of these churches grew out of the Protestant Reformation started by Luther on October 31, 1517, and did not exist prior to that time. The average person out here does not know the history of his or her own church. And very few people realize how young denominationalism really is. We have to stop there.